Today on the Ether Review, independent researcher Bok Ko discusses his forensic analysis of the DAO hack and the recent attack on the Gith client. So, Bok, people probably will, re- some people will recognise you anyway, uh, from DevCon 2, where you had the uh, the stick game, didn't you? <laughs> yes, I did. I did. Um, unfortunately, I didn't meet you there, but um, yeah, I had a hundred little stick puzzles. And what was the uh, what was the idea behind bringing that to uh, that to DevCon? Uh, that has been my uh, um, my business card. So instead of giving out business cards, I just give out little stick puzzles, and it's uh, more memorable than a business card. So. Can you tell us about the uh, well? What what do you do first of all? And 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 your I understand you know a whole you have done a whole bunch of forensic work on the uh, on the recent attacks on the Gith client, the ones that started with uh, with the first day of DevCon. Um, what's your background, and and how did you get into this? And then let's actually talk about the attacks themselves. Uh, soft, software is my hobby. I've been interested in software since about nineteen eighty eight. Um, I went to university and someone I met showed me how to hack um, accounts and that's when my interest in computing started and um, so I've ever I've since then been quite interested in how hacks are exploited um, my background I'm a actuary and and I work in the finance industry um, so I've been writing pricing models for um, debt instruments and other instruments that are traded. Um, so a lot of calculations, and I have to make sure that the calculations are correct. So tracing and debugging, it's just part of my work. Um, with the get client, um, it was just an interest in following up what was happening um, to see where all the transactions were coming from. Um, it was just looking around and by chance I came across the address where it was linked to a mining pool. And from mining pools and um, knowledge of the mining pools, you know that uh, they use the IP addresses for confirming um, your mining clients if you want to change some of the settings. Um, so uh, that that gave me the idea that the IP address of the network attacker could be traced. So you managed to actually get the IP address? Um, no, I, I just got the, I just got Dwarf Pool's account for the network attacker. And um, there was one more pool that the, that the um, network attacker used, e- ETH, at pool. Ethpool. But yeah, Adpool. Uh, but Adpool's transactions were from 2015. Um, so it's not as fresh and sometimes some of these sites would purge their data. But Dwarf Pool statistics was from um, about six months or so ago. So they should have the log files. So interestingly that um, when I posted these uh, links on Reddit, uh, Dwarf Pool seemed to respond that they have the IP address and they have passed it on to the Ethereum Foundation. Wow! So that mm. so the plot thickens. Yes, that's right. 
So what's the uh, so can you explain for our uh, for our listeners what the exact nature of the attacks were and and what the attacker was doing that was able to cause so much havoc uh, for the Ethereum network that they actually had to um, had to conduct uh, two protocol upgrades. Actually, they haven't they haven't done the second uh, the second upgrade yet, have they? No, not yet, not yet. So so the attacks. Um, the first one was on the get client. And they managed to find a bug in get where, when a certain instruction in the um, virtual machine was executed, it crashed the get client. So on the morning of the DevCon 2 conference, get clients all around the world started dying. Mine died and I, I got a, um, a mining node, just a small one. And I noticed that it stopped reporting. It reports every 15 minutes what's happening. And um, so it stopped reporting and it was dead for the whole of the DEFCON 2 period until I got back and restarted it. Um, the the um, developers at the DEFCON 2 conference very quickly um, woke up and created a fix for the GET clients. And um, GET clients, the new version um, was then used by the different nodes on the network and it was brought back up again um, but the luckily the nodes and the, the nodes in the ethereum network is uh, made from different diverse mine, uh, nodes including parity and then there's ethereum j and the parity and ethereum j did not suffer from the same bug that was in get that was the first um, of the attacks. Then subsequently there were attacks where they were sending transactions that used this EXD code um, instruction, I think code size or something like that. Um, and that required the nodes to uh, EXD code, copy EXD code size, those are the instructions. Um, it required the nodes to go through and look up data and it ended up causing the nodes to spend a lot of time on their CPU and disk um, searching through the data and slowing down all the node clients. So there were some transactions or each of the transactions were, um, were clogging up the, um, the nodes and there were many, many transactions that were sent. And they were cheap to send, so the the gas um, that was charged for running each of these transactions was not that expensive. So the network attacker was meant was able to execute lots of these transactions. And then the um, the third type of attack was um, the was an account bloat attack where the attacker sent transactions that created many, many empty accounts and they did this, did this by using the suicide opcode. And the suicide opcode returns to the um, account owner the, um, the fees when you shut down an account on the Ethereum network. And this was underpriced again and the attacker managed to send and create um, 19 million accounts on, on each of the nodes. So the nodes would have to hold these accounts in memory and that 
um, it will end up um, filling up the cache on the clients. So the clients would need to retrieve the account information and 19 million accounts was too large for most of the clients to handle. So each time they pulled it in, they had to pull it in from disk and that ended up slowing down the nodes again. Um, it ended up with the mining nodes, some of the mining nodes excluding transactions from their, um, their the blocks that they mined because it was taking too long to process. So the um, developers then created the, the, the hard fork that reprised the um, suicide and EXD code size and EXD, the instructions that were used to attack the network. Um, and the attacker found a, another set of instructions that they could exploit, but it was not that effective. So eventually they gave up. So what does this tell us about the uh, about the the network and as far as vulnerabilities and strengths? Um, so one of the strengths is the diverse clients that are running on the network. And um, the first get attack um, was not that effective because there were other clients that were running on the network that did not suffer from the same effects. Um, the second type of attack was where the attacker was using underpriced instructions and some of the clients were more affected by these than others. Um, the GET clients had probably a lot of optimization yet to be done. So as, as a developer, when you, um, when you develop software, you try to do the right thing first and then you optimize later. And so there was a lot of optimization, I think, that the um, developers of the GET application managed to add in um, after encountering the transactions that were slowing down the network, and the same with Parity. So there were quite a few releases before the hard fork to optimize the, um, the clients to handle these difficult transactions. So what can we infer about the attacker from their behavior in terms of attacking the network and also the, uh, the way that they've, uh, that they've formulated these attacks? So to formulate the attacks, the attacker would have a good understanding of um, assembly language and those, the low-level instructions that are used in the virtual machine uh, because that is the ones that they targeted in the transactions. From the um, mining information of the attacker, the attacker had a pretty small mining rig, so it's equivalent to what I have, which is four GPUs. Um, so it's not a big setup, not a big organization where they have um, many hundreds of GPUs running. Um, so the attacker was probably a small-time miner. Um, I would say that um, the attacker is good in assembly language and that normally comes with C, C++. I think that's, yes. Because it sounds like, you know, there cannot be that many people, right? I mean, there must be, we must be talking about less than 100 people who have this kind of, uh, who have this knowledge set. Probably in the Ethereum space, um, 
Yes. Um, maybe maybe thousands, several okay. thousands. Um, from some of the st- statistics I've read, there are like five five thousand um, blockchain developers in the world. Um, there's probably more that are familiar with what blockchains are. Um, but yeah, it would be a small set. Their account, um, they they started mining pretty early on in the Ethereum, or oh, when the Ethereum network was uh, went live. Um, so they they are an early adopter in the Ethereum space. You can probably find them somewhere in one of the forums during the early days of the Ethereum network. Why would they want to? Uh, what What do you think their motiva- motivation could have been to attack the, ne- the network? Then, um, not to perform some free testing, <laughs> um, <laughs> but it ends up being pretty good testing. It's still early days in the Ethereum network, um, so this would strengthen the network and um, in that the developers would have had to consider these attacks early on. It'd be more disastrous if it was later on in the piece that um, these attacks are performed. Um, what would they get out of it? Hmm. So, in the past, um, the price of ethers that run the, uh, that are used on the Ethereum network would have gone up during the uh, just after the conference or during and after the conference. So this could have been to suppress the price of ethers, um, showing some of the weaknesses in the Ethereum system. Financially, they probably would have known that this sort of attack would have suppressed the price of ethers. So they could have shorted, or um, yeah, shorted on ethers and made the um, profits from that attack. Other than that, um, some someone disgruntled. Pretty disgruntled. Yeah. Um, okay. So that's uh, well, that, that's the attacks. Now, what about the other one? Was you trace the DAO hacker, um, the DAO hackers funds through to um, uh, through to Shapeshift? Yes. Can you tell us a bit about that? And 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 have you done? Have you spent a lot of time looking at the uh, at the DAO hack? It's something that has been kind of forgotten by the community, but the story is is not finished, right? No, there's still about three and a half million dollars worth of Ethereum Classic, uh, e- Classic Ethers on the Ethereum Classic chain um, that the DAO hacker is probably trying to extract out into other currencies so they can utilize it. So current, um, my interest in the DAO started when the DAO was formed. And I was tracing the transactions just to, just out of interest, um, and this is just a continuation of it. So looking at um, what the proposals were in the DAO, and so I wrote little bits of code here and there to look at it. Um, so when the DAO hack happened, um, I was interested in how the DAO hacker got around executing the hack. The hacks itself. Um, was yeah it was a continuation of my my analysis into the hacks that um brought me to where the um the proposal that executed the hacks 
would have ended up in the DAO hacker obtaining obtaining the funds in a specific account, and the um, account was just sitting there for a long time, uh, unmoved, and and just recently, someone on the Slack, the DAO Slack forum, informed me that um, that some of the money was moving some of the ethereal ether classics were moving and the amounts were small amounts they were broken up into small amounts of about two two thousand ethers two three two three two three 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 ethers yeah and um the and i recall that um you know around the exchanges shapeshift uh, would allow you to almost anonymously execute these transactions to convert the um, classic ethers into another currency. Um, but it's, it turns out that the Shapeshift service is transparent. It's, it's nice that it's transparent uh, because it allows you to have a look at what's happening um, with the conversions that it executes. The amount that the the hacker was transferring each time um, corresponded to the approximate amount that Shapeshift allows you to convert in each transaction. And so that that led me to checking out Shapeshift itself. And the MyEther wallet uh, lady, Tevano, she provided me with the API that Shapeshift uses to um, report on its transactions. And after testing out the uh, the DAO hackers conversions in the API, it returned the transactions that the DAO hacker had executed to convert the classic ethers into bitcoins. And there were lots of these transactions. Um, in total, the the DAO hacker managed to get out about a hundred thousand US dollars. Um, into bitcoins from the classic ethers. Um, so there's another three and a half million dollars that are still stuck in classic ethers. Um, I wonder how the DAO, what the DAO hacker is going to do next. I'm looking right now at the uh, at the address that you um, sent me that has all of those transactions leaving Shapeshift, and uh, and there's a week ago. There's a $30,000 withdrawal. And I'm wondering if you've, uh, if you've followed that up or what, you, uh, what your view on what's going on there is. Um, no, I have not followed, followed it up since. So I saw the transactions going into the Shapeshift uh, service and then coming out as Bitcoins and then started um, going through the transactions and in bitcoins, there are mixes and other ways that you can hide your bitcoin transactions. But there are more services where, like gambling services, where you can send your bitcoins and then you may be able to extract your rewards out into another service, into another account. Um, so it gets a bit more complicated um, in the bitcoin land to trace the transactions compared to the ethereum um the ethereum services that you have 
Uh, there are not many that you can mix your coins with at the moment. Um, I'm looking at that. Uh, I'm looking at. Th- I'm just following those. I'm just clicking through those addresses right now, and they just this see- is oh. the one M two AA. Yeah, starting from one M two AA. Yeah, they just keep going. He just keeps hopping from. <laughs> it just keeps going forever. Yeah, what is with that? Yeah. Yes. Um, yeah. So spreading spreading the um, bitcoins in lots of different places. So it'll be interesting to automate this analysis a bit more and see where it leads to. Yeah, because my browser's now f- full up with tabs. <laughs> <laughs> okay, hey, well, this has been really, uh, this has been really interesting, Bok. I hope uh, let's let's touch base uh, at a, at a later date to see how uh, how this uh, investigation has proceeded. Yep, yep. it'll be interesting. Um, is there any? Uh, are there any links or uh, that you can suggest, uh, or the audience members might be interested in following up on? Um, on the DAO hackers, just look up, just Google the DAO hackers booties on the move. Um, on the Ethereum network attack, you can look up the um, just Google Ethereum network attackers IP address is traceable. So just some of the keywords will get you to the links. Great. Well, fantastic. I'll uh, I'll talk to you later. Okay. Thank you. Cool. Take it easy, Bob. I'll see you. Bye.